0: It's a tremendous danger when we have people who run institutions and who have jobs for life in the academies. They're completely convinced they found the truth. They publish in their own journals. They teach those quote unquote truths to their students. And then they've indoctrinated generations of students now. Peter Bogosian
1: is a former professor of philosophy and co-author of the Sokol Squared Hoax Papers. These were intentionally false and absurd intellectual papers that were accepted as legitimate in ostensibly prestigious academic journals. In 2021, Bogosian resigned from Portland State University. You can either have free speech at a university or you can have DEI bureaucracies. It is literally impossible to have both. Today, Bogosian, a champion of the Socratic method, goes around the world, teaching people how to speak across divides and to harness their humility and ability
0: to ask the right questions. We know where this problem comes from. It's the academic institutions. The places from which you graduated are not the same places today. This is American
1: Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Peter Boghossian, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, and it's good to see you in real life, finally. Absolutely. You know, when we spoke last time, it's almost to the day two years ago, and and frankly, so much has happened in the last two years since April twenty twenty one. You know, one of the things that you told me was that you believed that the educational system has been entirely captured Correct. and needs to be rebuilt from the ground up. Correct. Right? And I, I'm very curious at this point. There's people out there look, trying to rebuild, trying to facilitate change. There's some significant action in Florida, for example. Chris
0: Rufo and DeSantis.
1: Absolutely. And I'm kind of curious if you've rethought your position on
0: this at all. Well, now we have more evidence for that two years on than we did before. So we know that there's large scale ideological capture of the institutions. So what one of the things Chris Rufo is doing, and I, I, I sincerely hope he's successful, But I'm not gonna sit around and wait for Chris Rufo to succeed. One of the things that he wants to do is he wants to extirpate the DEI bureaucracy from our academic institutions. And I think that the way to think about this is a paradox of tolerance. Have you heard that from Karl Popper in 1945, introduced it. So how tolerant should we be, tolerant people, be of intolerant people? So, in DEI bureaucracies, we have extraordinarily intolerant people, we have ideologues, they have a set or a suite of propositions that they forward to the expense of all else. It's like they're trying to rig the game, so it'd be like trying to go to a boxing match with a chainsaw. And then when you try to put the brakes on that so that you can have a more classical liberalism where ideas flourish, they accuse you of trying to halt free speech. And so. Two years on, I think we now have more evidence for wide-scale organizational institutional capture, but we also have people like Chris Rufo and Ron DeSantis trying to fight that from the inside. You
1: know, so Popper's paradox, just right. for the benefit of our audience, is this idea that you, you can't uh, tolerate intolerance too much or you create an intolerant society. What struck me about that as I look back at it, it reminded me of actually Marcuse's principle of repressive tolerance. Correct. Right?
0: James Lindsay has spoken about that. One way I think we can look at this, if the educational example is too abstract or somebody isn't in academia, is you can look at this as uh, radical Islam in Western Europe, or the Ilians Post with the publishing pictures of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. To what extent should society tolerate... Uh, illiberal, radical, intolerant people in the orthodoxies in which they bring to the society. That's the paradox of tolerance in a nutshell. So it's not only in an academic context. And I think that in The One-Dimensional Man, Marcuse writes about this, and my writing partner, James Lindsay, has written about this in The Marxification of Education and and on his podcast and and other places. The criticism of people like Rufo is that You're just replacing one intolerant orthodoxy for another intolerant orthodoxy. I don't think that's true. I certainly think it's something to be mindful of. We don't wanna remove DEI bureaucrats and then place conservatives or liberals or libertarians or Marxists or anybody else in that situation. We want a kind of intellectual and ideological diversity to flourish. So getting back to your original question, we we talked about the legitimacy crisis. There's a crisis of legitimacy in our institutions. It's spread far beyond academia at this point, and we have choices. We, we have choices about whether or not we're going to build, which is I'm do- what I'm doing, well, whether or not we're going to be I, complacent I just want to add that fight. the
1: legitimacy crisis is earned. <laughs>
0: like, 100% earned. Right? Let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay, so the legitimacy crisis is that people do not trust institutions. They do not trust the CDC, medicine. They'll trust their own doctors, interestingly. Uh, 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 Self-surveys report that people trust their own doctors, but they don't trust the system. They don't trust the HMOs. They don't trust the CDC. They don't trust any legacy media institutions. They don't trust the ACLU. They don't trust the... Uh, SPLC, the lo- Poverty Law Center, they don't trust the New York Times, they, they don't trust NPR. And the reason that they don't trust those institutions is because those institutions have betrayed their trust. They're no longer trustworthy. They have an ideal, ideological agenda that they forward above what's true. And that compromises everybody as Americans. That com- that's the one commonality we should all share. Well, you
1: mentioned that NPR. Let's talk about this because this has been in the news recently. NPR got flagged on Twitter as uh, was it state affiliate, state-funded media. I think. Love that. Um, Okay. (laughs) Well, well. So, so what is your what is your reaction to that?
0: NPR is the paradigmatic example of a venue, a a news venue. It's not a news venue. It's a propaganda outlet that has been ideologically captured. Now, let's talk about that. So. Fox has a very specific ideology that they promote. And not only do they not hide that ideology, Sean Hannity and others are screaming about it from the rooftops. I have no problem with a news outlet, news, that clearly states their biases right from the get go. And they, they have commentators, Bill O'Reilly doesn't work there anymore, but they have commentators and they say, you know, we're conservatives, this is why liberalism is ba- liberals are incorrect. The problem with NPR and other media organizations is that they fly under the banner of neutrality, but they are clearly not neutral, clearly not neutral. So we did a series on NPR, my friend uh, Matt Thornton, who who uh, wrote the book The Gift of Violence. We did a series that conservatives and people have said there's a problem with NPR, but nobody's actually taken the time to look episode by episode exactly at the timestamps. What's the problem? What are the fallacies? How is this reflective of ideological capture? So that's, that's what we did. And, that, and that's what really contributes to the legitimacy crisis.
1: What was the most profound thing you found in your analysis?
0: Let's say that I wanna figure out why conservatives believe, and I just wanna be clear, I'm not, I'm not a conservative, I do not self-identify as a conservative. Why conservatives want to build a wall on the Mexican border? What NPR reporters will do is that they'll ask a liberal or somebody who's not a conservative, as opposed to just asking somebody who believes that, this is John Stuart Mill's point, who actually believes that a wall should be built on the border and asking them for what their reasons are and then analyzing those reasons. They ask somebody who doesn't believe that and then they analyze those reasons, which are already shown to be fallacious because they're not good faith actors.
1: Well, because the answer is probably because it's because they're racist, right, or well, something
0: well, like that. Well, that's right. embedded into the structure. So if that's the lens through which you go, critical race theory is embedded in the structure. If, if, if the lens through which you view the problem will always be the same, the systemic racism, oppression, misogyny, bigotry, it's baked into the system. It can be, as Helen Pluckrose says, a conspiracy without any conspirators. So if that's the starting assumption, then the natural manifestation of that assumption in terms of one's belief is that, oh, we don't want to build a wall because it's, because conservatives are racist.
1: So, you know, when we were talking a little bit earlier, I, you, you, you just used the term, this, there's been ideological capture of all these institutions, Correct. we're talking about the media. Um, I, that, that's the term I tend to use, but you said, no, this is corruption. It is corruption. Okay,
0: so how is it corruption? Well. It's corruption because once truth stops being the North Star of the institution, something else has to take over. We spoke briefly before the interview. You you can either have free speech at a university or you can have DEI bureaucracies. It is literally impossible to have both. I don't and Harvard just put a free speech committee together and people like Robbie George from Princeton have been advocating for this. You cannot have both simultaneously. So ideological capture is by definition corruption because you forward an ideology, we're forwarding equity, we're forwarding inclusion, as opposed to we're we're gonna try to figure out what's true and we're gonna try to falsify or make false the claims that we're looking at. They're ideologues because they start the conversation with the assumption that they have the truth and then they look in their landscape to support the propositions they already have and then they have mechanisms within the institution to weaponize the, the starting beliefs against people who oppose the orthodoxy. I mean, it's truly, it's sinister. Now, if I had said that two years ago, getting off what your question was, people, so the Overton window is now shifting, right? So if I had said that two years ago, people say, oh, I don't know, that sounds conspiratorial, and now there's just so much evidence. Charles Nagy, I just did a, a series with him in Florida about professors in which this has happened to over and over again, it's now irrefutable. What you just described
1: for regular viewers of American thought leaders, they'll recognize that this is some, the, the scenario you just described isn't restricted to the academy or to media. Public health today can be uh, described very much in a similar way. I'll just give an example. So the, the headline is CDC partners with social and behavioral change initiative to silence vaccine hesitancy. Right. And basically, what's happening here is you have. Armies of people on social media and beyond basically being harnessed through nonprofits that are actually government funded correct. to stop the proliferation of views of people who are sometimes highly credentialed, highly expert, in fact, later proved to be correct, mm-hmm. right? And in order to achieve a very particular view of how you're supposed to see. Public health, or what the right thing you should be doing as a person in society. I, right? I
0: would add make one addition, if I may, not just doing believing. Correct. That's a key distinction.
1: Correct. Right. Right. Oh, that's 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 actually very fascinating. But my 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 point being that, and you know, typically when you're looking at the whole the public health sphere, we talk about institutional capture of Correct. agencies by. Big pharma, for example, you know, I think there's a, we've, now we're seeing there's a lot of evidence of that. But we, the the thing is, what what you just described is, is this kind of phenomenon of ideological capture. How does that, that connect with this? Because what you described earlier seems to, you know, almost be
0: highly analogous at at worst. So, so I think one of the things that's really important is that we understand what expertise is. Tom Nichols has a book, The Death of Expertise, and so nobody should listen to me in anything I have to say outside my area of expertise. So I know I have no medical knowledge whatsoever. So with that said, I think I can comment on the mechanisms of belief formation as they go through the system. So we know, for example, on Twitter, that there's been shadow banning. And when Jack Dorsey went to Congress, they called it de-boosting. You can call it whatever you want. But we know that there's been an orchestrated campaign I would say the campaign is less around governments and more around an ideology, more around the suite of propositions or ideals that cohere within this broad, woke ideology or critical social justice or whatever one would want to call it. So that itself forms or helps to form or or helps to calcify public opinion around certain events. So again, the truth-seeking mission of the institution is gone, which gets back to what you asked me before of the legitimacy crisis. That's what creates a crisis in confidence. So people's ideas, for example, on Twitter or YouTube are being promoted on the basis of the algorithm as opposed to the marketplace of free ideas.
1: Right, on the basis of the algorithm decides what you're, sort of
0: promotes what you're supposed to believe. Now the real question is, and there's considerable debate about this, I'm very confident that the only reasons that those particular algorithms are in place at all is because of academia, it's because of that's where, that's the nucleation point, that's where the wellspring is and that's how it manifests itself in various platforms and channels and social media and organizations, public institutions, et cetera. So the
1: thing that I've observed watching the public health messaging over the last three years, it and understanding what the scientific realities were relative to that messaging where, you know, Shockingly, most of the time, there was a huge distance between what the messaging was demanding and what an actual reasonable understanding of the scientific evidence available was. And and so policy wasn't being shaped by that, right? The thing that struck me, though, is that there was this interest in eliciting a particular behavioral outcome. Like, for example, famously, uh, Dr. Fauci was. T- t- talked about Matt changing his position on masks, and later he said, Well, I did that because I wanted to, uh, you know, I didn't want people to do a run on the masks. So I said, You know, the masks right. aren't important initially. The, the point was that that illuminated this idea that, that it, it's the, we're not necessarily being told the truth, we're being told the thing which the authorities at large believe will get us to
0: behave a particular way. Yeah, it's an interesting question. What if the lethality of the virus, instead of being 0.1% or 1%, depending on death from COVID or death by COVID, what if the lethality of the virus was 50% or bubonic plague level, one in three or what have you? Would that justify, it's more of a philosophical question, but would that justify lying people for the greater good? You know, so there's always a tension between the truth and... The the what what the policy line should be. I mean, I've, I personally err on the truth. I think people are entitled to the truth, particularly in a democracy. I think we should know the truth. And hiding people from the truth doesn't protect them. It just makes it so that they don't develop a facility or the tools to figure out what's true. There's a kind of authoritarian impulse there. Right? And that's the new access. It's right. not conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat. It's authoritarian, non-authoritarian. It's those people who Believe in cognitive liberty, and those people who believe that you ought not to believe whatever it is that you believe. There's a kind of party line, and they, by sheer coincidence, of course, they happen to know what it is. So we we have a tension in the society, and I term that Culture War 2.0, the axes of switch switched.
1: Lately I've been thinking, you know, especially watching the response of different groups of people to you know some of these very authoritarian uh, pandemic policies for example is that the the, the tendency if, if I found sort of a commonality around the people it certainly wasn't left right yeah, or maybe for there's sure. more right people but it had to do with um, people who have a some sense of the transcendent and sort of some relationship with maybe a higher power I don't know um, versus people who are purely kind of transactional in their in their behavior this is this, this is the axis that I've kind of come to. I don't know, and I'm very curious what you have to think about that.
0: I, I don't see that as a, a helpful heuristic. I mean, if someone has a sense of the transcendent and they have a profound commitment to that in their religious lives, for example, they were more likely to go to church, right, during the, especially during the beginning of the pandemic when there were lockdowns. But I don't think that's the access upon which the discussion turns. Because you have, for example, the, S- the Southern Baptists, you have wokeism in every feature site society. You have wokeism in churches. It's like a universal solvent that corrodes everything it touches. And so you have woke atheists, which are most atheists, and then non-woke atheists or anti-woke atheists like me. And then you have woke Christians and anti-woke Christians. And there's more commonality in the the woke christians and woke atheists there's more commonality there than there is between the atheists the non-woke atheists and the a- woke atheists so i have more in common by far with an anti-woke christian and so it's a new access but that doesn't mean it's because i have a sense of the transcendent that that means among other reasons that i think that there are fundamental goods worth preserving in our civilization. I believe in democracy, I believe in the Enlightenment, I believe in free speech, I believe in freedom of the press, I believe in freedom of assembly. And those are the values that I share with many of my Christian friends, although I don't share their metaphysics. I don't believe Jesus was divine, I don't believe he walked on water, I don't believe any of it. And so the question is not, to me, is transcendent. The, the question revolves around one's attitude towards Western civilization and Enlightenment values. As we're talking here, I'm reminded of uh,
1: one of your uh, street epistemology activities, and so this is actually kind of a really fascinating gamification of what you really believe. I mean it really speaks to me in the past as an educator, I liked using gamification. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and so you know you've done, you've been doing this a lot on all, all of sorts of topics, and the one that, that jumped to my mind was you know the only remedy uh, to past discrimination is present discrimination, which is, of course, Kendi's assertion. Correct. You explain to me, we'll show people a little bit what this looks like, what this street epistemology is, how does it work, and then we'll get to this specific instance.
0: Okay. In 2013, I developed street epistemology. Epistemology is how you know what you think you know. And I originally did a proto version of this in the prisons when I wrote my dissertation. And it's taking epistemology out of the academy as an academic discipline and giving it to people in the streets. So taking the tools of professional philosophers and giving them to ordinary people. And so my friend Reed Nicewonder and I go around the world. I have a nonprofit, National Progress Alliance, and donors fund me to do this. So we go around the world. We were just in Australia and Puerto Rico and Florida, and we're about to go to London. Uh, We put tape on sidewalks. And Michael the tape Pastor is strongly President agree, President, Vice President. agree, slightly um, agree, neutral, and, uh, and then we'll on the already. other side to, to disagree. Duty. And then we'll ask people what they want to talk about, if they have a strong belief in something, and then we'll make a claim out of it. For example, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. We'll put them on the neutral line, and there are only two rules of the game. The first rule is don't move until I say move, because if there are multiple people on the line, we want to make sure that the person at the end of the line isn't influenced by those persons. So we want everyone to make their own uh, minds up. And the other rule is you can move lines or change lines anytime you want, but you have to commit to a full line, one foot on the left, one foot on the right. And the reason for that is viewers or people who see it, it's, they're not nudged. They're actually moving from, for example, the strongly agreed to the agree. So, that's how the game is played. I ask targeted Socratic questions to help people align or calibrate their confidence to what line they're on. So, if they, have so much, if they have X evidence, then they should have X confidence. But often people extend the warrant of the confidence beyond the evidence. So we help them align that. And what's fascinating to see is when people change their minds as a result of questions or other points people break up people bring up. So it's a way to teach people how to have impossible conversations, name in my book, so they can speak across divides, not to persuade, but to understand. Why would someone thoughtful believe this?
1: Well, and so so, and so, and what happened here in this particular, in this oh, particular in the, instance? We,
0: I think we did six or seven, five or six, I don't know, Kendi videos, and we asked that question, which has percolated throughout the entire society, certainly in academic institutions, and Kendi's a best-selling author. Uh, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. So, so in other
1: words, anti, you have to be to, to basically- That's anti-racism. You, ha- you have to be anti-racist yeah. to deal with racism.
0: Right, so, so if so- somebody had historical oppression variables, for example, they were black or what have you in their past, the only reason, the only way to fix those problems of the past is to discriminate against people who do not have identity, salient identity characteristics like if you're white, cis, hetero, male, for example. So we need to discriminate against those people because the ancestors of other people have been discriminated against. Now, most people, when you just ask them that question, particularly between the ages of say 15 and 25 or 30, will agree with that because they've never really thought about it. They haven't drilled down on it. And so when you put people on the lines, and again, my goal when I do this isn't get to get people to align with what I believe. In fact, this will only work if you're a neutral facilitator. And so one of the things you see in that particular video is that through some pretty basic targeted questions, people will move once they understand what it means to actually discriminate against somebody and what kind of a moral horror that is, independent of historical oppression variables that people have had because of their ancestors and their past.
1: Our educational institutions are not
0: teaching us to think. They're corrupt.
1: Yeah. Well, you're using the word again because- Well, they are corrupt.
0: Yeah. Right. There is a pervasive corruption in society. There's no other way we can function as a democracy. There's no other way we can make better decisions for our community and institutionalize those than getting rid of the corruption. It's the only way.
1: I really like this method right? Of course, you can't you can't replicate that. But in general, like in, in every situation, obviously, but...
0: But, but you, what, what do you mean by that? Because you can totally replicate it. Okay. Any anybody can do So that's the other thing. It's free. It's Anybody can do it. If you don't have a dollar for... Uh, you, ideally, you'd have a dollar or two dollars for tape. But if you don't have tape, you can use chalk. If you don't have tar- chalk, you can use sticks. It's free. Anybody can do it. If you have kids, people have kids, they can... If they have a dispute between their kids, they can just set it up in their living room. Anybody can do it. It's a way to help not only make your own ideas clear, but understand somebody else's view.
1: You have to be able to ask good questions to facilitate this though, right? Yeah,
0: we have videos about how to do that. So, you know, one of the questions that I ask at the end, almost every time now, we're constantly changing and improving the method is, what line do you think I'd be on? And my goal for that is for them to either say, I don't know, or to put me on another line. So, for example, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. I strongly disagree with that. But it is ideal when I ask the participants, what line do you think I'd be on? They'd either say, I don't know, or that I would strongly agree. Hmm. Then I know that I've been successful.
1: There's all these different, um, well, fact-checking organizations, but also like media rating systems. Right. So media left or right that have kind of proliferated. Um, there's one called NewsGuard, which res- recently has been exposed uh, by Michael Schellenberger, who we mentioned earlier, and, and others as, Good as not being very uh, uh, <laughs> objective, right, and so. Whereas we've had epoch times. We've had I've had very serious issues with many of these. There's one that struck me as very interesting because I felt it's somewhat accurate. Actually, it's called All Sides, and the way All Sides works, and this is very interesting, they remove all evidence of what media is actually presenting the information when they present the information itself, and they just give the text to people, and they have people have to decide whether they think where they feel. This lands on the spectrum and they replicate this over time. And in that situation, we're, fine, we, we're, we're defined as leans right, which I, think is, which I think is fair. But the key is that the identity is removed, right? This is what you're talking about. If the identity is removed, then people just have somewhat more of an objective view. Like yeah. if people saw your picture and it said, you know I, I think the term you use is that you you don't you're not a right-wing maniac but if you someone had seen your picture right and it said right-wing maniac watch out for this guy and then they saw you they would treat you very differently than if you just came in and showed that you're just you know trying to facilitate an intelligent discussion yeah two, two, right? two,
0: two things for that it's, it just had dinner know with Winston Marshall last night from Mumford and Sons a former uh, band member and he was telling me something and i said uh Are you right-wing? He's like, no, I'm left-wing. So I think there is an attempt to actively smear people. that Stephen Pinker calls it the left pole. Anybody who's not far left is automatically on the right. The thing I haven't seen all sides, but the only thing is that you'd have to have some way of assuring there's an equal distribution of people or to weight their votes differently. Because if you have people coming in who are Conservatives or liberals—that will skew the distribution, or that will skew the the results. But there are certainly ways to uh, move more toward objectivity and analysis, and it's it's not particularly difficult. These are not insurmountable
1: problems. Well, no. Just in the point is, in most cases, the desire isn't to actually assess whether a media, what, what, how a media is doing.
0: It's more to you know label. Right, so, Correct, so, right. What, the, yeah. what I think the deeper point is there is why. The, 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 the reason that I would propose to you for why are not political or epistemic reasons, they're moral reasons. Here's the syllogism, good people believe these things, I'm a good person, I believe this. Good people believe that whatever policy on abortion, Whatever economic policy, whatever rate, you know, discrimination. present. good people believe this. I am a good person. I believe this. Good people believe this. Epic Times doesn't assert this. I am a good person. I don't want to believe this. Epic Times is the opposite of whatever my political leaning is, right, left. So those are all ultimately moral claims that someone is making. One is making a moral evaluation as as a result of that those aren't political. I mean they're political in a superficial way.
1: Basically what you're saying is that everything has been kind of pulled into this moral sphere. Correct, right? And this is actually kind of what you're fighting against in a way.
0: Correct, it's a tremendous danger when when we have people who are who who run institutions and who have jobs for life in the academies. They're completely convinced they found the truth. They publish in their own journals. They teach those, those, quote unquote, truths to their students. And then they've indoctrinated generations of students now. It's a tremendous problem. And what do you do about it is the question. Well, you either take Rufos, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. Or you build new things, or you let it fester and get worse which furthers the legitimacy crisis. But I can tell you in no uncertain terms, China is not beholden to this. China is not beholden to equity mandates. China does not have diversity, equity, inclusion, and they will limit speech, to be sure, criticism of the government and have you, but they're, they are ultimately a meritocratic system. They have the Gaokao, for example. Well, so maybe I'll, I'll push back a little bit Please on do. this with
1: some obvious examples. I mean, it's meritocratic unless you're part of the wrong group. Oh, like a Uyghur Muslim. Like a Uyghur Muslim correct. or a Falun Gong practitioner or a Tibetan. That is also correct. They're not hiding that. No, no, they're not. In fact, the state propaganda explains to people why the correct moral position to use is, just, is, is to hate these people. Actually. That is correct. I guess one of the untold stories, that just struck me, given everything we've talked about, of, of what Falun Gong practitioners have been doing is China is going one by one to people and giving them pamphlets and saying hey you should you should rethink what you've been told um, here's some evidence that, that suggests otherwise <laughs> in a Freedom House report from some years back um, they list uh, th- this is being one of the most persecuted groups in the, well, in the world in China but they say that in some states in China it's actually been reduced and they they believe that that's because of this activity, that that this kind of what, one-on-one. What's the, this in that sense? Oh, oh the handing the, out. The yeah, conference. the one-on-one yeah. activity of handing out the material, talking to people, realizing you don't, you're not, you know, yeah. well, everything if, the propaganda has told you.
0: If I, I can't, I can't speak to that. But if I were to make a guess, it wouldn't be any of the material they handed out. It would be the personal relationships w- made with the person who is handing out the material. Mm-hmm. I think that's. I, I think you might be right. <laughs> I don't I'm not an expert, yeah. that's my guess. <laughs> no, it's people change their minds based upon, well, an a- atmosphere and environment of psychological safety and getting to know people, getting to know gay people, getting to know black people, getting to know white people, getting to know people who are different from them. That's how they change their mind. That's the humanizing process. Data and evidence rarely change people's minds about things that have a moral valence, almost never. Fascinating.
1: Two years ago, you told me institutions are captured, we have Correct. to rebuild from scratch. Um, you point, I think you mentioned Ralston College back in the day, that's Correct. still being they're still, developed in Savannah. Stephen Blackwood in Savannah. Right. Um, now we've got the University of Austin where you've actually And we're come here on. in Austin.
0: Right. <laughs> right. They're going gangbusters. I'm a founding faculty member and they have over well over a hundred million dollars at this point. They use a facility in Dallas, and so they've constructed it. They have forbidden courses in the summer in which they bring in world class public intellectuals to talk about things that, sticky issues like trans is sticky would be the, the, the most polite way to say it. So they had Kathleen Stock and Deidre McCluskey and Deidre McCluskey's trans have a uh, one of the first only, if you want to frame it as a debate, fine, a conversation, fine, and so they're, they're bringing people together. <clears throat> excuse me, and the university has a truth-seeking mission, so it's scheduled to go online 2024. I'm extremely excited about that. And again, I, I want to stress something so important. We've talked a lot in this interview about institutional capture. As the president, Pano Canula says, the remedy, this is a, a, um, an anti-Kendi quote in a, in a sense, the remedy to left-wing ideological capture of our academic institutions is not to build right-wing institutions. That's not the solution. That only polarizes and makes the situation worse. The solution to left-wing organizational capture of the academy is to have a truth-seeking institution where truth is the North Star. Free inquirers are, are uh, encouraged to speak their mind. Give, that's one of my jobs. I give people tools when they go in the Forbidden Classes program so they can have more productive conversations. How do we evaluate evidence? How do we have these conversations? And once that's done, we have a framework that, that in in which students can engage ideas. Keep in mind, that's almost exactly the opposite of what the academy is now. We have people modeling the exact opposite behavior that they should be, shouting people down, screaming, freaking out. It happened at Stanford Law with judges. And again, if you notice, just to bring it back to something I said before, if you watch that video, it's fascinating because they have a DEI bureaucrat who is basically fueling that. University of Austin does not have a DEI bureaucracy. Oh: and admissions are merit-based, purely merit-based. One of the big issues
1: that many institutions had over the last three years is, you know, severe restrictions on student life. It would be one, way to, one one way to put it. And so Hillsdale College comes to my mind right. as a conser- clearly conservative institution, but explicitly also conservative. explicitly conservative, but at the same time fostering, explicitly fostering free thinking, I think. Um, uh, as being one that kind of was able to navigate that somehow. Yeah,
0: I, I can't speak to that. The way to figure that out if that's true, if they have a, if they want to foster free thinking, then they should have a Marxist in their economics department.
1: I, I, I would doubt they have one.
0: Okay, so yeah. then my, yeah. then I would claim mm-hmm. a, a kind of skepticism about that. I know, I know Victor Davis Hanson is there, who's a major public intellectual, but the, the what the University of Austin is building is different. It's people from who have different commitments or ideological commitments, if they have any commitments at all. And so students are given the tools, they're shown people who actually believe, which is a key, it's another emerging theme in our interview from John Stuart Mill, and they are, um, so, so just take a step back. When I taught atheism at Portland State University, I am an atheist, but when I taught the arguments for the existence of God, almost universally, I brought people in who believe those arguments and, and I would say, okay, what's the best argument for the existence of God? You have 50 minutes, 10 minute break, and then the students are going to ask you questions. So we gave this, I gave the students tools, they asked the questions. I'm not going to be effective in giving students, because uh, I, I just don't believe the arguments. So I think for Hillsdale or for Liberty or for other traditionally conservative institutions, that's fine. You're explicit, you're honest about your mission. But I would question if they're truly free thinking, unless they have people on the faculty who actually believe certain propositions within their domain of expertise, and then teach those to students, and then give students a tool set to figure out what's true. The only way it could be free thinking, right?
1: You're, you're, you're saying you think you should have someone on your faculty who teaches woke ideology.
0: Correct. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely essential. That's a prophylactic to falling into delusion.
1: You told me, and I thought this was very interesting a couple of years ago, that you're always seeking mechanisms of your own belief correction.
0: Correct. Disconfirmation.
1: Right? Disconfirmation. So explain that.
0: So as the late physicist Feynman said, the easiest person to fool is yourself. Michael Shermer and others have written about this. Steven Pinker, Dan Dennett has written about this. So we have a moral impulse about something and then we look to an epistemic landscape. So we feel something strongly, and then we look to facts and evidence. We pull the facts and evidence as it accords with our own moral impulse, and then we raise our confidence and say, I am sure of this, I am very confident this is true, because this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence, this piece of evidence. But what you should be doing is, you should be engaging ideas that you find unpalatable, or that you don't like, or that maybe you're offended by, in fact, probably that you're offended by. And that's the other danger of the proponents of woke ideology. They discourage discourse and dialectic and conversation because they believe inherently rooted in those things is an oppressive power structure to keep minorities down. So they won't even consider ideas or have conversation with people with whom they disagree. That's a cognitive toxin that will almost guarantee you to lead into an epistemic sinkhole almost guaranteed. There's something that I I call the megaphone,
1: and I see that the megaphone is the mechanism of manufacturing perceived consensus in society. The thing that struck me as bizarre, right? and I just didn't fully grasp that it was possible, that there's some portion of our population that is incredibly susceptible to being um, affected by this. In fact, they may change their minds 180 degrees overnight when that thing changes when the, the the information that that megaphone is projecting changes correct and some there's some portion of the population who seems to be not susceptible and i suspect that, that there's a whole bunch of people that just kind of follow along right hence the the power of this machine right even though they they're they don't necessarily believe one way or the other but they're going to run with it because it's the perceived consensus right right
0: uh, uh, so let's let's situate everything you said in the current context so one of the thi- the belief changes that we're currently seeing the Overton window is shifting on the trans issue is with detransitioners the testimonies of detransitioners are changing people's minds the Travis Stark clinic has been exposed people are coming out and say almost universally people with autism young gay men young uh, gay women who are told you're not really gay you're born in the wrong body and then they're giving what Abigail Schreier talks about, irreversible damage, hormones, luprin, breastbinding binding, things that have literally irreversible damage. What should the response be to those situations? The response should be, wow, well, like, I believe this. I thought it was the right thing based upon the evidence that I had. I realized maybe there's something else to there and maybe I was wrong. That should be what a sane, reasonable, rational person says. So Aristotle writes that a person shouldn't do a bad thing to feel shame, but if you do a bad thing, you should feel shame. So bracketing the shame, the, the idea is that if you made a mistake, own up to it say that you made a mistake, don't just do what's morally fashionable. And my prediction, very explicit prediction to you, Yan, is that the people who have advocated for the sheer madness that has engulfed society in the last few years will not say, you know what, I'm sorry, I was wrong. At the time, the same people, by the way, were screaming that they were on the right side of history. At the time, I believe that, I'm sorry I made a mistake. My prediction to you is that we will have epic gaslighting. In other words, these people say, I never believed that, I was never a proponent of it. And the moment you do that, you compromise your integrity. Not your intellectual integrity, although you compromise that as well, but you compromise your moral integrity.
1: Well, the people that, that come out and say they were wrong are very rare. I know, I, I, I look for them.
0: And, and, and they should be respected, mm-hmm. independent of what they said they were wrong about. So we need to, we need to create a culture where we re- reward a few things. One of those things is saying, you know, I believe this, I was wrong. I've changed my mind. The other thing is when you ask someone a question and they say, I don't know, whenever I do those spectrum street epistemology games and people say, geez, I really don't know when I ask them, I always say, that's a great answer. And if I may just share a story with you briefly, I was asked once by my past employer, if race was a valid biological category or a construct. And I said, I don't know, I'm not a biologist, ask a biologist. And for saying I don't know, I was reported to the Office of Global Diversity. Think about that for a second. Which is the other reason for the emerging theme in the interview that you cannot have both DEI offices and free speech. There cannot be a party line that you have to tow, and if you don't tow it, you get in trouble. The fact that that's always looming, that you think you should give certain answers to racial questions or trans questions or what have you, that is antithetical to having free speech in an institution. You can't have both.
1: There's something
0: incredibly attractive, there must be,
1: okay, about Marxist or Marxian, Marx-related, maybe even Hegelian you know, ideology. Right. Um, because despite the horrible realities it's created repeatedly throughout history. People seem to keep gravitating back to it and swearing by it and believing it deeply. And It's like a know, cockroach. You stamp <laughs> it out and it pops up again. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I, I, I'm intrinsically, I'm, I don't want to be promoting that. I don't want to be, you know, funding people who believe that.
0: But if, if, if you really don't want to do that, I have a simple solution for you and for all your, your viewers here. Stop donating to your alma mater. <laughs> it's, it should be the simplest ask in the world. My nonprofit, National Progress Alliance, has a whole campaign, don't donate. The institutions, that because we know where this problem comes from. It's the academic institutions. This should be literally the easiest ask in the world. Not asking for money, asking you to not give money to your alma mater because the places from which you graduated are not the same places today. So if you wanna make a a dent, a a small contribution, don't give to your alma mater.
1: And that makes a ton of sense to me. What what I'm referring to here is if I'm setting up my faculty, I'm I'm not keen on hiring the the Marxist ideologue who will then convince the next generation,
0: right? Oh, uh, I see, okay, I misunderstood where you're going, okay. The problem is that the only way people develop responses and an immune system to ideas is not to be separated from those ideas. Every new generation isn't born with knowledge. We need to understand things. So let me give you a quick, very practical example, which I got crazy grief for. I taught a science and pseudoscience class. And I used to have people come into the class over, I think, Zoom at the time. This is. Uh, before and during the pandemic, and I had Mark Sargent come into the class. Mark Sargent is a true believer, like an actual bona fide true believer. Has written a book about it. Goes to all conferences that the Earth is flat. The only way that my students could have understood Mark Sargent's arguments is by asking him questions, listening to the response, and then responding to those responses. If not, what's going to happen when my students get out and they encounter a guy like Mark Sargent who's incredibly versed in whatever it is he's versed in? I don't even know what it would be called. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it is, what if these people are right? And I'm not necessarily saying about the flat earth, but what if the the beliefs that don't comport with the dominant moral orthodoxy. What if those people who promulgate those beliefs happen to be correct? Wouldn't you want to know that? Now, in the case of Marxism, I would want to know that my students, I have a son and a daughter, I would want to know that my students were exposed to Milton Friedman, Karl Marx, and whoever they were exposed to, they were exposed to the widest range of ideas possible, given the tools to interact with those understand the arguments pro and con, that's how we make an educated citizenry. We don't make an educated citizenry by removing entire domains of thought from a discipline. And that's just parenthetically the problem with removing gender studies. We need people to study these ideas of race, class, well, less so class, but race, sexual orientation, quote unquote, cis -cis status, but we need them to do that in the most rigorous and robust ways. And when they aren't done, when instead we're forwarding the narrative, that's a problem. But even in that case, I would argue that we need to have a true believer of somebody who teaches our children or at least presents the material to our kids. And when I say kids, I'm not talking about K through 12, that's a different thing. I'm talking about specifically in the universities. In
1: principle, I am fully in agreement with everything you're saying. It's just something specious about this particular ideology. Marxism. Kind of, yes. It's somehow, it somehow captures again and again whole societies, right?
0: So you're concerned about, and we'll bracket for the moment whether the concern is legitimate or not, you're concerned about uh, Marxism festering and growing in the United States? Well, I, I, I deeply. The moment that you make an exception for an ideology, mm-hmm. and, and we can talk about you know, some horrific racial things, some you know, d- does, does that mean we have a lunatic in there who you know, wants to throw people in ovens? Which is a totally reasonable question as to be brought into the conversation. Or the flat earther. Or the flat earther. Or, or, or the, yeah, but the, of course the, those are very fringe. They're, they're very different because yeah. one is in the empirical realm, right? Whether or not the earth is flat. And and the other one is in the moral domain. It's a kind of antibody. We're exposing people to ideas. Marxism isn't gonna go away. It's not gonna go away if you don't talk about it. But what's gonna happen is that people won't be able to take what they learn in their class, go to the other professor, engage those ideas. So the price of an educated citizenry you're talking about exposing to people to dangerous ideas. That's what it means to live in, a, not only necessarily to live in a democracy, although it does, but that's what it means to be an educated citizen. Mm-hmm. And if you want to propel the democracy, you have to have people who have engaged a wide range of subjects and issues and developed counters and counters to those. That's what being educated means. It's Plato's Book 7 of the Republic. It's being led out of the cave, a state of ignorance and darkness and toward the light. Is there some age in
1: the progression of the development of a human being, um, where ideas become appropriate or the human being is able to discern between good ideas and bad ideas, make judgments. One of my observations is I feel like we live in a more infantilized society, actually, right? I I think that might be deliberate. I think that people might be more susceptible to some of these really terrible ideas that sound good at a younger age. This strikes me as as, as a very important dimension in
0: in the discussion. Let me throw something out to you. This is one of the most, if not the most important questions anybody could ever ask themselves in their whole lives. Here you go. Under what conditions would you be willing to change your mind? What facts would you have to hear? What evidence would you have to hear? If you institutionalize that process at a very, very young age, then the threshold for what is deemed appropriate will dr- drop dramatically, because people will have the tools to engage those ideas. Now, what that threshold is, that's still an open question, but if you give people a process or a way that they can th- think more clearly and be more, develop a kind of skepticism about ideas, then that age range will lower significantly.
1: That makes a lot of sense, but we have a society where this is not how children have been taught, and this is the argument that you're making. In fact, kids have been kind of
0: indoctrinated ideologically, largely. Correct. That's why we cannot have your example of Hamilton, or I think I brought up Liberty. That's why you can't have conservative or liberal institutions. You have to have mix of ideas for people and into a true intellectual diversity in which people can come and engage and try to falsify and and use the tools that we have had since socrates we know that these tools are the best way philosopher jürgen Habermas says you don't have a conversation with someone to persuade the goal should be to understand communication as understanding so we can understand oh like your question Marxism is a particularly pernicious thing. Why have people fall, fallen prey to it? Well, we that's a simple question. You ask someone who believes it, well, "Why do you believe this?" And then that's the kind of way that we cultivate a, an understanding. And once that once we do that, then there are downstream social effects. It's Socially salubrious, people are much less likely to rip down statues. People are much less likely to engage in acts of physical violence. People are much less likely to be uncivil towards each other because they understand why the other person believes what they believe because they 've been exposed to those ideas.
1: Fascinating Peter. I enjoy speaking with you so much you know i 've uh, hadn 't had a chance yet to just get you to tell me, which I often do with guests is like where you come from, how is it that you ended up today being you know, the, the, the street epistemologist? Um, give me a sense of how your thinking has evolved and where you actually come from.
0: So I was heavily influenced by Socrates. I love Socrates, he's without question my favorite philosopher, I used to read The Republic, The Apology, The Laws, Mino Credo, everything when I was a kid and it led me down a wonderful life path in a sense. I'm curious about why people believe what they believe. I'm I'm genuinely interested in what would lead someone to that belief. And I think that there are tools, tools that I mentioned before in the interview that I developed in prisons, that we've used in prisons. Many of these tools, like the Socratic method I mentioned, have been around, but when you add hostage negotiations, uh, drug and alcohol counseling, cult exiting, when you, so the Socratic method is the skeleton, but when you add to that skeleton, the best available research data and evidence for the last twenty four hundred years you come up with a remarkably powerful tool I, I, I watched a movie when my dad was alive years ago about the gorillas, and it was just this horrific, truly ghastly slaughter of these gorillas and I was moved by this this film, and I said, you know I, i've got to do something about the gorillas. this is just a terrible thing and my dad said. What the hell are you gonna do about the gorillas? You can't do a single thing about the gorillas. Why don't you do something about what you can do something about? And I really started to think about that, like, oh, wow. Think globally, act locally. Uh, and so I started of think, okay, what can I do about it? Well, what contribution can I make? And it has to be free, that's the other thing. I don't sell any products, there's no gimmicks. I can teach people how to ask themselves and other people better questions. I can teach people how to think more clearly about things in a non-threatening way. I can teach people how to speak across divides. I can teach people to understand that your ideas are not you and you need to be merciless against your ideas and unbelievably kind and generous and loving to attributes of yourself and other people that you can't change. And so that's the contribution that I wanted to make. That's why I go around the world and I put, <laughs> I put tape on the sidewalk and I teach people how to do this and then we release these videos. So I have a nonprofit, and now I'm pursuing my dream. That's what I want to do. So somewhere
1: along the way, you became a professor of philosophy. Of course, we discussed some of the people you brought in right. to some of your classes. And then you resigned from Portland State University in kind of spectacular fashion, or at least you know, a lot of people around the world knew about your resignation. What's, what's the future for you?
0: Well, let me just go back to the Stop Doing My Job because it ties in with another theme from the interview is I would get summoned to the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion or people would file a complaint against me. And more often than not, it was because I wanted to look at the other side of the issue because I challenged what was morally fashionable. And that challenge alone was problematic enough so that people were traumatized or they needed a trigger warning or it was considered a microaggression. So what's next is I'm going to keep working on my nonprofit, National Progress Alliance. I'm going to move toward um, exposing other instances of corruption. Wikipedia is one. I'm going to continue to move towards exposing corruption in academic institutions. And I'm going to keep going around the world and teaching people how to have impossible conversations.
1: Well, and I want to finish with this. You mentioned something that I find very compelling and I believe to be true, but I don't know if it's necessarily obvious. You said your ideas are not you. Correct. Your ideas are not you. So what is you?
0: Well, at one level, what is you is a physical attribute or characteristic. I'm 56. I can't change that. Things you can't change. So if you can change it, it's subject to attack reasonable. If you can't change it, the color of your skin, your height, your age, it's off bounds because by definition you can't change it. So what is you? What do you have at the end of the day? Was a, my, my mentor was in Buchenwald and I uh, remember reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. One of my favorite books. Yeah, it had a profound effect on me and it actually ch- completely changed the way that I raised my children. And the, the way it did that, and this answers your question, what is you? Uh, Victor Frankl was in a line, he had a, he's a very wealthy wife, children, home, bus- if everything one could imagine. And then he's basically, basically in a loincloth, basically. And somebody's deciding his fate. He goes to the gas chamber or he works himself to death. And in that moment, he, he didn't have his education, his degrees, he didn't have nothing. So what is you are the things that can't be taken away from you. But what you are more than that is what your integrity is. Whether or not you're a person who is lives to their ideals, now the word is based. Whether you're a person who's based, whether you're a person who's willing to revise their beliefs, it's what kind of intellectual and emotional and moral life you want to lead. And the other thing is these things don't happen by accident. You know, if if you've been treating people poorly. Your own life in the relationships you build, even in that context. In Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, he has no more relationships. He's a guy, so you're not even your relationships, but you are the culmination of the way you've treated people in the past. So a kind of integrity, like a string through pearls, that runs through various facets of your life.
1: Right, and thankfully, there's there's also redemption to be found from past misdeeds
0: unless you subscribe to wokeism. There's no redemption, there's no absolution, there's the stain of original sin, which is privilege, there's no no way for you to work out of that horror that you are allegedly complicit in. And that's the other reason that we need to fight the ideology, because we're creating a bunch, we're creating entire swaths of people who hate themselves based upon their immutable characteristics or what their ancestors did and we're creating a divisive society in which we stop looking at people as humans and we look at them as oppressor or oppressed nobody benefits from that everybody is the loser so let's switch that narrative let's change that let's repudiate the ideology and let's move forward and start talking to each other again
1: well peter bogosian it's such a pleasure to have you on thank you yeah and i appreciate it thanks Thank you all for joining Peter Bogosian and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja (music) Kelleck.